So it is my uh, privilege and distinct pleasure to introduce or reintroduce you to our guest preacher this morning. Leanne is no stranger to ECC. She preached for us twice while I was on sabbatical and then again in the fall. And she's graciously agreed to come back and preach this morning from John chapter 4. Leanne <clears throat> serves with the Indiana Conference of the United Methodist Church as a content specialist, which is a cool name. Uh, she gets to tell the stories of what God is doing in and around uh, the state of Indiana in Methodist churches. She also is an adjunct, adjunct professor at Indiana Wesleyan University. But what I am most excited about today <coughs> is, <coughs> you can hear it, can't you? <coughs> is that I get to introduce her in a way that no one has ever gotten to introduce her before. This is very special, at least in a public setting. See, a week and a half ago about... Leanne finished several uh, years of very hard work and completed her PhD in homiletics. So it is my great privilege and joy to invite you to welcome the Reverend Dr. Leanne Ketchum to the platform. Well, thank you. That was more than necessary, but what a joy it is to be with all of you. Thank you so much for your warm welcome, not only today, but in all the previous Sundays that I've gotten to worship with you. Um, it is a joy always to be with you. We're diving in today to a familiar text, uh, a familiar story, the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman, and it always amazes me the way a familiar text, uh, no matter how many times that I read it or how familiar something feels, but God has a way of breathing new life into it. And this is the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit that, and God's continued desire to be known by people. So no matter how many times we have read it, or if today was your first time hearing it, God promises to speak to us with a word for today. What grace. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in Jesus, the word made flesh, you lived your love for us. And as you seek to be known by us, to us, and in us, help us hear from you today. Help us hear the word that you have for us. Amen. Now in my Bible, at the top of chapter 4 in John, uh, the translators summarized the following chapter in this way. They say, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And I've read this story many times, but I wonder today if I can suggest an alternate, uh, another option for how we could summarize John chapter 4. And I may, maybe what I would suggest is that it be Jesus and the isolated woman. One of the first things that we learn is that it's about noon when Jesus reaches this well in the city of Sychar in Samaria. It is the heat of the day. Do you remember what heat feels like? It's been a hot minute, hasn't it? You know, you're, you're sweating, it's dripping off of your brow, uh, the, the hot air coming into you is the same temperature as the hot air coming out of you. We might have a hard time remembering, but try to use your imagination. Jesus is there at the well in the heat of the day. And when he reaches this well, there is a woman who comes to draw water. She's at the well to draw water at noon which is totally weird. It would not be typical. Most of the women, and apparently all of the women, because she is alone, come to draw water early in the day, before the heat has arrived. So she's there alone, which what sig the signals to us that she is an outcast. She's a marginalized woman, ostracized 
uh, on multiple levels in her personal life. We hear later on in the chapter why this is, what is going on in her life that has most likely resulted in her being considered an outcast by her community. She's been married five times. She's living with a man who is not her husband. Now, there's some disagreement around interpreting this. Uh, Some uh, commentators say that she is a sexually immoral woman, Uh, but the text really isn't clear. It says that she had husbands. She could have been divorced. They could have died. We really don't know. Other commentators suggest that she is in an abusive uh, and um, painful family life. Uh, Within this context, there would have been a thing called leveret marriage, which is where women needed the protection of their husbands or their fathers. So when they were married, if their husband died, it was the duty of the brother to then take his uh, dead brother's wife as his own, so to provide her protection in the society. And so there's the suggestion that maybe, you know, it's gone through a number of brothers in this family, and now the family is withholding this last son from her, uh, leaving her without social protection. So there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this particular aspect of her life. But wherever you fall on the details, we can agree that she is outcast. She is marginalized. She's isolated. She's there at the well by herself, trying to get through the day-to-day and uh, without much support. Now, isolation is one of those things that it's more like death by a thousand cuts. I think we saw this so acutely during the pandemic. As people had to be distanced, we were all thrust into a situation where physical distancing became a bit of a necessity. And there was so much that we did not know in the beginning. There was so much gravity, so many things at stake, and the concern was so high. Some of us may have thought, we'll just wait it out. We'll hunker down, we'll stay away from people, and we'll just get through this. And you may find yourself here months and months later with fewer close relationships than you used to have. And now some of us, uh, in another situation, perhaps some of us online, we physically distanced out of necessity. We have immunocompromised ourselves, our family member. We needed to isolate so that we could live. So many of us know isolation in a deep and personal way, perhaps through the pandemic or perhaps through other ways. You may have experienced a significant amount of loss in your life, that the community that once was around you no longer is there. Or perhaps it simply rings true for you that although we are so deeply connected with things like the internet and social media, your personal experience of life is that In that connection, you have never been more lonely than now. So we also carry the sense of personal isolation that this woman holds. But for her, it's more than personal isolation. There is also societal and cultural isolation at play. There's this quick line in the text, and if you read it really quickly, you can miss it. But it is one of the crucial pieces. It says, for Jews, do not associate with Samaritans. Other versions translate it this way, for Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. These are two people groups with a long-standing history. They're at an impasse. They share a common religious thread, uh, but they, and they practice similar religions, but they both disagree with the other. They see the other as idolatrous in how they worship. 
And there are centuries of hostility. This is not just like a momentary thing, but centuries of pain and dissension uh, and avoidance and isolation. So Jesus leaves Judea and goes knowingly, willingly, and intentionally into enemy territory of Samaria. So in this community that stands largely at a distance from the Jewish community, isolated and at a distance from Jesus. So that's what we might call cultural or social isolation, a sort of separateness where we view the other person as a non-entity or an enemy. So Jews and Samaritans, they had clear signals of how they would know who was an insider and who was an outsider, and it was around the place of worship. For Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. For Samaritans, you worship on Mount Gerizim. We have other signals in our culture today that suggest who is on the inside and who is on the outside. And it varies on the community, but some signals can be around things like vaccines, social theories, views on history or education. We have all sorts of signals that we use to say who is on the inside and who is isolated. We see this macro level kind of isolation taking place over the last handful of years. Many of us live in homogenous environments, people who think the same way we do, who have experienced life in a similar way to us. Many of us live isolated from difference. And the truth is, is it's more comfortable that way. Current research online even suggests that algorithms are designed to show you more and more content of the same thing to further entrench us in our beliefs. Pew Research in 2020 said that we have ne- our America is exceptional in their political division. When referencing the election, nine out of 10 people on both sides of the aisle said if the other group won the election, it would do lasting harm to the country. Eight out of 10 people said that they differed with people across the aisle on core values. So perhaps, maybe now more than ever, we know this sort of social isolation in a significant way. The sort of feeling that you can look or hear someone and say, I truly do not understand this other person in any way, shape, or form. And so that is what we hold as we read this text, that both for this woman and for us, we have these experiences of personal isolation and social isolation from one another. What can possibly overcome this distance between people and God and between human beings? And perhaps that is what is so radical about Jesus, the word made flesh. The one, the God-human who came and dwelt among us. That God's answer to isolation is relationship. Boundary crossing, history diminishing relationship. So Jesus comes into this community encountering not only a Samaritan, but a woman, which is totally a big deal because Jewish men would have been taught to not talk to other women too frequently, and especially Samaritan women, because they would have been viewed as unclean. So here again, Jesus is willingly, intentionally, and knowingly speaking not only with an enemy, but with a woman. He is crossing all sorts of lines to build these relationships. And so we eavesdrop a bit on their conversation. There's a real sense that there is 
kind of a, a ship's crossing in the night. They're not really understanding each other too well. Jesus asks this woman for water, and she says, how is it that you as a Jew would even ask me, a woman of Samaria, for water? And Jesus somewhat cryptically responds and says, uh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, you would give me a drink. But you would, and you would have asked him to give you living water. And so she ends up saying, sir, give me this living water so I don't have to come here by myself anymore to draw water. Sounds nice. And so even though there's a sense in the conversation that she does not understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do, she does what we all can do. She keeps talking. And Jesus keeps talking to her. And this is one of the longest exchanges in all of the Gospels between Jesus and a person that's recorded. And they have this rich and vital and layered theological conversation where she walks away with a greater sense of who Jesus is and who she is in light of that. There's this sense that Jesus meaningfully sees her. And so there's this woman who is fully outcast from her community, being seen and known by someone else. She goes back to her community, and she says, come, hear about this man who told me everything that I had ever done. And then there's this sense that she gains this deeper, more layered understanding of Jesus and the life that he brings. To the point that she leaves her water jar there. The entire purpose for going to the well she leaves it behind. She has no use for this water jar anymore. She has living water. This trip to the well that revealed how isolated her life was becomes a new spring, a living water of relationship where she is put in relationship with God and brought back into relationship with her community because she becomes this unlikely evangelist she would not be exactly the uh, front of the list for who you would pick to evangelize your community. She kind of has all the things marked against her. And yet here she is. She's the one that encounters Jesus and goes back to her community to tell about who this Messiah is. So Jesus spends two days in this community, and many come to believe that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So when we think about the distance that exists between groups that have been hostile for centuries, between community members that have cast some away, and between people who are far from God, the question is really not what can bridge the distance, but who. Who can bridge that distance? And that is Jesus, the healer of ancient, long-standing isolations and divisions. Jesus invited the woman and this whole community in Samaria out of isolation and into relationship. And that is the invitation that Jesus still extends to us today. Come, be known, be seen in relationship with Christ. And then go, be known and seen, know others and see others in relationship with them. When we encounter Jesus, we are called out of isolation and into relationship. Which, let's just be honest, it's not always easy to be in relationship. But it is a deep well of living water. 
There was a story that was shared at a denominational event a handful of years ago, and part of the Wesleyan Church, one of our churches in Benton Harbor, Michigan, uh, shared this story between two men of their congregation. Andrew Collins was, and this is his words, a corrupt cop who falsified reports to get convictions. And one day on the job, he came across a guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was intent on getting conviction, so he arrested him even knowing he was innocent the entire time. So this man who was arrested, Jamil McGee, he goes to prison. And while there, he says he's so angry. He's just consumed with revenge. He just wants to get this cop when he gets out of prison. And his anger, he says, consumes him to the point where he loses relationship with his son and he loses relationship with his family. All he wants is revenge. And he talks about how while he was in prison, he sees this Bible sitting in his cell and he starts to read it. And he comes back over and over again to God telling him to forgive. Forgive this man for what he had done to him. Forgive him for this time that he was spending in prison unjustly. At a similar time of this happening, uh, the cop, Andrew, is also feeling uh, consumed by guilt. He's done this on a number of occasions. He just is racked with guilt. And his wife encourages him to go and talk to a pastor, talks to a pastor, lays it all out there, everything that he's done, the number of times he's done this, and the pastor tells him and, and connects him with a member of the FBI. So Andrew goes, and they go through all of his case records, and he shares, you know, all of the lies that have happened. And so it, a week after Jamil McGee was sitting in prison, forgiving Andrew, he finds himself released from prison. And Andrew did end up serving uh, a year and a half in prison as well. Well, years later, the two men crossed paths in ben Benton Harbor. It was a chance meeting. Uh, Jamil was in the park, and he sees him across the way. And he's with his son, and he goes up to this crooked ex-cop, and he says, holds out his hand, and he asks, do you remember me? And Andrew says, yes. And he says, I want you to explain to my son where I was for four years. And Andrew says, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, they have some choice words for each other in part ways. Fast forward another couple of years, and uh, they cross paths again at a local coffee shop that is run by a church with this Christian Community Development Association. And some events happen, and it's just sort of a moment of God working behind the scenes where Jamil and Andrew encounter one another again and are able to have a real conversation. And Andrew apologizes and shares about his own life. And they have this time not only of forgiveness, but a reconciliation where the two become friends and are still friends and minister together about what God has done uh, in reconciling them not only with God, but also with one another. And that is the power of an encounter with God. Both of them separately, alone, experiencing forgiveness and reconciliation that then change their relationships. Recently, I was also speaking with a pastor in Ohio who's a United Methodist, and he's Native American. He was reflecting on this long history within uh, Native American history in the United States, this long history of pain, forced migration, leaving homelands, many pushed to reservations uh, with inadequate resources. 
And this pastor told me a story of the Wyandotte Indian Mission in Ohio. John Stewart, a Methodist and the son of slaves, had dreamed that God was telling him to head north and minister to people. So he goes, and this is in 1819, he begins to preach, and a community is formed, and they form a church on, that's come to known as the Wyandotte Indian Mission. Well, in 1843, the Wyandots are forced to move west by the Indian Removal Act, and they sell over 100,000 acres to the government. But they also deed these three acres that held the church and the cemetery to the Methodist Church. Well, in 2019, those three acres were given back to the Wyandotte people. Land doesn't usually go back in that direction. It usually only goes out of the native people's hands. And so there's this picture of the reconciling work that God is doing behind the scenes. Centuries of pain and pictures then of grace, of how Jesus is truly the reconciler of ancient and long-standing divisions and isolations. We are invited into relationship with God. And that relationship is not only for our sake, but it is for the sake of the communities around us as well. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says these words, From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And so that is the call, that we would leave the isolation of our own lives, be reconciled with God and be reconciled with one another, that we would be people who boldly, courageously, and follow in Jesus' footsteps to cross boundary lines, to build relationships with people where there are centuries of pain and hostility, that we would be agents and uh, people of Christ's grace in those places. May we follow Jesus' footsteps into places that were once regarded as enemy territory and find instead we find relationship. Let us pray together. Gracious God, there are so many places around our world that we say, wow, they're really in need of some grace. We know that there are people that we regard in our own lives where we would say, they really need some grace. That we regard them as enemies or as people who are far off from you. God, I pray that you would move our hearts with compassion. That we would not regard others as enemies or non-entities. But that we would be like Jesus that being reconciled with you would have so changed us that we can go into those relationships willing to see others, to encounter them in the fullness of their humanity, that we might leave those conversations and that others might leave those conversations like that woman, feeling fully seen and fully known. God, in all the broken places of our world, we pray that your grace would lead us, that your Holy Spirit would compel us to, to move towards others as we face division in so many places in our personal lives and in our culture, that you would make us people of reconciliation, living your ministry of reconciliation that you have entrusted to us. 
call us once again, stretch our imaginations of the healing that you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.